The Women of Ill Repute with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, do you have any doctors in your family? I'm just going to preempt you by saying that I do not. My aunts and uncles and cousins are doctors and nurses, but for some reason that gene skipped over my immediate family. I grew up squeamish and uncaring. I blame my mother. Blame your mother, that's one thing. But squeamish on uncaring, I don't think so. And my dad, I have no idea. Big family, I didn't grow up with them. There's probably doctors in there. But my mom was a physiotherapist who started nothing, kind of became a big bossy lady. But I'm trying to think of like doctors. The only doctor she ever introduced me to was the head of psychiatry at the hospital where she was at because I said I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> it all ended up fine. <laughs> that's such a weird story that she read. But she was in medicine herself, right? She was a physiotherapist. That's medicine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I and I, I think it's really important. But anyway, we had lots of access. Well, you know, as Canadians, we were lucky to grow up. We had regular access to doctors, doctors of all kinds, pediatricians, specialists. My mother, again, <laughs> one day, seriously, I'm going to try to get through an episode without mentioning her, but she was one of those 70s kids that loved psychiatry. Like she bought all the self-help books, I'm okay, you're okay, which I thought was called Emoc Yurok, because that's how I learned to read. But she would take us to any psychiatrist. I remember she said, let's go see Dr. Zhivago. And I was like, another psychiatrist? (laughs) Turned out to be a movie. But my point is that we are lucky as a country to be able to avail ourselves of all this medical support and assistance, but it's not enough, right? Yeah. Well, I want to go back to Dr. Zhivago because my mother, I don't think your mom was sick. Or maybe it was a crush on Julie Christie, but Omar Sharif as Omar as Dr. Zhivago he was pretty amazing. And yeah, I mean, our system isn't perfect. You know, you've got you've got all the wait times for surgery and nobody can get a GP. It's uh, overcrowded waiting rooms. I mean, it's just, it's pretty bad. Young medical professionals leaving the country, the high cost of drugs, that's a, a real problem. Yeah. And so along comes doctor, of course, Daniel Martin. So I met her years and years ago, and she's kind of amazing. She was, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get into it, but a lot of people became aware of her when she spoke to a Senate subcommittee in the States about our fabulous universal healthcare system here, which of course they don't have. I want to play a clip of that. I know it was a while ago, but she represented herself so well. And so I'll try to figure out how to do that later on in the show. But She's absolutely fantastic. And uh, she's got some very, very strong ideas about how we can fix our own healthcare system. Yeah. So she's not speaking to Senate subcommittees anymore, but she's chair of the Department of Family, or maybe she is, we'll ask her. She's chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at U of T. She is running a, a family practice there out of Women's College, and she headed up their COVID response, which is pretty amazing. Uh, now that it's all over, of course, not. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, almost all over. Let's hope, knock wood. And she has, as you said, a clinic, which is great because I want to ask her, I've got this thing on my arm that I think might need to be removed and maybe she'll take a look at that. What do you think? You're not going to ask her about that. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know I do all my own surgery anyway, so no problem. Let us welcome Dr. Danielle Martin. Danielle, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so nice to see your face. I remember when I worked at CBC, you would come in and you would do these commentary things because that's what you do. You're a doctor and you have opinions and you share them. And But we'd mostly talk about shoes. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. What's a person without their footwear? 
Exactly. The shoes make the doctor, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to start by, okay, I'm going to play this clip, which you've probably heard a million times, but let's just give a listen to it because it, it shows what a feisty and smart cookie you are. So let's listen. What length of time do you consider to be equitable when waiting for care? Well, in fact, uh, the Wait Time Alliance in Canada, sir, has established uh, benchmarks across a variety of different diagnoses for what's a reasonable period to wait. And what we've we've found is that actually working within the single-payer system, we can reorganize things. You know, I waited more than 30 minutes at the security line to get into this building today. And when I arrived in the lobby, I noticed across the hall that there was a second entry point with no lineup whatsoever. Sometimes it's not actually about the amount of resources that you have, but rather about how you organize people uh, in order to use your cues most effectively. And that's what we're working to do because we believe that when you try to address wait times, you should do it in a way that benefits it's everyone, not just people who can afford to pay. On average, how many Canadian patients on a waiting list die each year? Do you know? I don't, sir, but I know that there are 45,000 in America who die waiting because they don't have insurance at all. Were you terribly nervous? You know, it's funny. I was not nervous because I had no idea anyone would ever see it. You know, I was in a room with about 20 people and I, uh, I got home late that evening from Washington and put my suitcase down in the front hall. And my spouse said, how did it go? How was your thing? And I said, you know, I think I did a good job. Like, it's a shame nobody but my mom will ever see it. (laughs) And I think now it's been seen, you know, 30 million times or something. And so it is one of those things where, of course, through the retrospectoscope, had I known that it would be one of those viral YouTube clips, I, I certainly would have been nervous. But I mean, it was a bizarre experience. And the the problems that they have with their health systems in the US are so profound that I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade for ours, although we've got plenty of problems ourselves. But I think that, you know, this question of values is one that I feel quite strongly about. How are we going to go about fixing the issues that we've got? It's got to be in a way that that is consistent with our values. And I do feel we more or less have agreement on those here. And that is not to be taken for granted. I want to get into all the stuff that matters, the COVID and what's happening with U.S. politics and are they still interested in our care and so on. But I mean, you just you had such balls and I don't think that they were expecting a Canadian to say, oh, yeah, well, how many people are dying here? You know, like, why are they so surprised that we have smart and snarky people here? And thank God you were able to play that. I mean, I think that the thing about political theater as we observe it, you know, there, and certainly, you know, we've observed it in spades in the last couple of weeks around getting a a Speaker of the House in Congress. But political theater here as well is we know that these folks are not really talking to the person they claim to be talking to. They're talking over your head to the public. And they're talking over your head to their constituency, to their base, and trying to score a point. And so, I viewed myself as a kind of bit player in a larger drama that was unfolding at that time around Obamacare, you know, trying to, uh, and the Affordable Care Act, the battle to the death between the Democrats and the Republicans about whether they would be expanding insurance in the US or not. It had nothing to do with me, really. And he was ostensibly talking to me, but really that senator, Senator Richard Burr, who later went on to avail himself quite well in some subsequent political dramas in the US. I was just a vehicle for the conversation that they were having with one another. One of the things that maybe your major recommendation on your six steps to improving our healthcare system is one to do with ready access to drugs. 
at a reasonable cost. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this is really about the what I call the unfinished business of Canadian Medicare. It is absurd in the year 2023 that a patient would come to my office and I would be able to see them, examine them, order x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, refer them to a specialist, give them a diagnosis, you know, spend as much time as needed with them at no direct cost to them. And yet, as soon as I hand them a prescription for a treatment to actually deal with their issue, they're completely on their own. I mean, who on earth would design a healthcare system in such a manner? So we are well behind, Canada is well behind all industrialized countries that have universal health systems in not including prescription medications in our public insurance plans. I mean, it is a it truly is a no-brainer, not only because it makes sense from a justice and equity and fairness perspective, but also because we would save money. You know, our current hodgepodge of insurance plans in the absence of universal pharmacare means that we pay much higher prices for our drugs than most other industrialized countries. And we have millions of Canadians who have no drug coverage whatsoever. I mean, imagine being in a situation as many of your listeners may have experienced where you're, you know, you're dealing with a diagnosis and the stress of that. And on top of it, trying to figure out how you're going to pay for these puffers for your kid or your, your oral cancer therapy or your IV infusions for your rheumatoid arthritis. Like it is truly astonishing failure of public policy. So why? I mean, we've been talking about this forever. It's been decades where people like you and you in particular have said, we need to have a universal policy and it would save us so much money and more people could be treated. So why? Is it, is it because of the provinces? Is it because politicians just won't? Let's remember that the inflated prices of drugs do benefit some constituencies and powerful ones. So, you know, private insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, that money goes somewhere. It doesn't go nowhere. And so there are powerful, important interests at play. So never? <laughs> It'll never happen? We see, I hope, a crack of an opening in this supply and confidence agreement between the NDP and the Liberals at the federal level now. And, you know, one of the main pillars of the agreement of Jagmeet Singh and the NDP to prop up the Trudeau Liberals right now is the implementation of dental care across the country for children and universal pharmacare in some way, shape or form. So what's that going to look like? I don't know. Will it really happen? I don't know. But I do hope that this is an opening. And certainly in the COVID era, I don't know that we'll ever be in the post-COVID era, but in the COVID era, the version of it we find ourselves in right now I feel like we've had a little practice at this, right? I mean, we opened up COVID vaccinations to everyone immediately. Didn't even matter whether you had a health card, whether you were a resident of Canada, whether you showed up somewhere and you wanted a COVID vaccine, you got one because it was better for the health of everyone that anyone who wanted a vaccination would get one. And the same thing has, has been the case for COVID treatment, including Paxlovid therapy, including hospital admissions related to COVID-19. So we've really been trying as a country to recognize that it's good for everyone when people can be treated for their problems. So you're not giving up? <laughs> no time soon, sister. No. Let me ask you in terms of comparing ourselves to other countries. I, you know, I did a little research and we seem to do quite well. Is there a country whose health system is one that we can aspire to, like say the National Health Service or 
or are we as good as you can imagine it getting? I mean, obviously with improvement, but who would you compare us to favorably? The Taiwan health system went through this exercise of kind of picking and choosing the best of health systems across around the world when they built their universal health system in Taiwan back in the 1990s. And I would approach it like that, sort of like building a car where you would take the pharmaceutical approach that's used in New Zealand or perhaps Australia, and you would take the primary care approach that's used in Sweden or perhaps the Netherlands or Denmark, like some one of the Scandinavian countries, and you would take some of the innovations around seniors' care from France, and you would take some of the innovation and high-tech innovations that are occurring in the US, like you would you would pick and choose because there is no country that's got the perfect health system, but there are islands of excellence in every health system. And I think that's where it's kind of fun to think about what those international learnings could be and how you would how you would construct that car from those imported parts from all around the world. Is that something we could aspire to? I think so. Although, you know, frankly, like we could begin just by scaling up the islands of excellence we've got in our own country. There are tremendous programs that exist across Canada. The Canadians should be furious that they can't access across the country, whether it's, you know, there's a program called Race in British Columbia, which is around getting rapid access to specialty care. There's a program in Nova Scotia for seniors around end of life decision making and priority setting. There's tremendous work in community health centers in Ontario and in Saskatchewan for equity deserving communities, like the list goes on. So actually, like you could construct such a car made entirely of Canadian parts, if you were so inclined. It's a question of looking at where those innovations are occurring. And, you know, Monique Bejean famously called Canada a nation of pilot projects. And she didn't mean it as a compliment when it comes to health system reform. And I do think that that is unfortunately a fair characterization. It's not that we don't innovate. We're actually quite innovative. Even and perhaps especially in our low resource environments in in the north, in rural communities, in high needs, underserved urban communities, like there's some very cool stuff happening in healthcare in Canada, but it happens like in one place for one neighborhood or one practice. And then we, we don't do a good job of scaling it up. I was really interested just researching you about, you know, you obviously have a strong sense of social justice or you wouldn't spend so much time doing this. I'm I'm sure you get paid as a doctor. We can talk about doctors now. Nobody seems to have one these days. I was really struck by your sense of social justice and, and even somewhere you use that corny old phrase, which I still think is wonderful. But, you know, my daughter laughs when I use it, which is making the world a better place. Let's all make the world a better place. Yours comes back from your mom finding her dad dead when she didn't think he needed. Like, tell us where where that all started and where that came from. Yeah, I definitely grew up in a family that was social justice oriented. And I was laughing at your banter earlier because I don't have any doctors in my family. I'm the only doctor in sight. And yeah, so my mom's family immigrated from Egypt in the early 1950s to Montreal because they spoke French. That's where they came and they. They were, you know, like your kind of prototypical immigrant, low-income family trying to make a go of it. And my grandfather, who was the primary income earner for the family, became very sick. He developed a, a heart condition very young, like in his 40s, and was in and out of hospital and eventually went to the U.S. for an experimental treatment to try to help restore the circulation to his body. Anyway, 
they were effectively bankrupted by his various adventures in the in the Canadian health system. This was all pre-Medicare, of course. And not only could he not work, which put huge financial stress on the family, but the medical bills were just out of control. And so I grew up and then he died young. My mom found him dead in the bed next to her when she was 18. And I think I grew up with that story feeling, you know, very strongly that sense that no one should ever have to make the choices that they had to make. And I didn't have to make any of those choices. I grew up, you know, as such a a privileged second generation Canadian wanting for nothing. And also in the post-Medicare days, like no one in my generation remembers what that was like. But my mom remembers what it was like to watch her parents struggle with the medical bills. I don't think any Canadian would want to go back to those days. So we've got problems, but that's not one of them. And we're grateful for that. And it does shape my perspective. And I will say that this conversation about pharmacare is not dissimilar, you know, and as a family doc, and I'm not even in the most high needs community, but I absolutely have patients in my practice who take their pills every other day who, you know, will not come to see me for a while because they're embarrassed that they couldn't afford to fill their prescription. They don't want me to know that their blood pressure is up because they weren't taking their med, you know, or you see the kids who end up in the emergency department with asthma exacerbations because the puffer ran out and it was a tight week. And like, I mean, it's just, that is not right. And so we talk about making the world a better place. I think it can be felt to be corny when we're at that kind of 10,000 foot level. But when you think about it in terms of real people and their real actual day-to-day problems, it doesn't feel corny at all. It feels quite pressing to me. What about the reverse? And this is, again, one of your one of your tenets is that there are some of us in this country who are over-revealing themselves of medical services. And I've, I would say that I might be one of them, not because I choose to, but because I'm a cancer survivor and and also had sarcoidosis, and I have this sort of weird medical history that I get MRIs every year. On top, I've seen my specialists every, I'm very good about that. But even now, when I last saw my breast doctor, who was also Wendy's, and he said, he's retiring, by the way. <laughs> this is like, I've been seeing them so long, I'm seeing them out. <laughs> no more boobs, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no more boobs. And I said to him, you know, seriously, I've been seeing you for 17 years. And now that you're retiring, I mean, can we just call it quits? And he said, yeah, probably. But to my point, I feel that there are a lot of people out there who probably don't need as much care as they are seeking or getting. You know, the chapter in my book about this, I call Don't Just Do Something, Stand There, which is the most important, you know, it's one of the most difficult things you, you learn to do as a, as a physician or, you know, as a parent or in any part of our lives, this idea that recognizing that not all intervention is helpful and that actually some intervention is harmful. And I just want to distinguish between, you know, it may be that your cancer doctor could have sent you back to your family doc a little earlier than he did. And in that sense, you know, one might term some of those annual visits over the last couple of years in quotes, unnecessary, but I'm not sure that they were harmful to you. But there are lots of drugs and interventions and tests that we do that actually cause harm to people. And the example I use in the book is, you know, a real story of a guy who is one of these Bay Street executives 
in Toronto who had a fancy executive wellness package from his high powered firm. And so they sent him for one of these executive physicals where they do a whole bunch of unnecessary stuff to you that your own family doctor would never order, not because they don't care about you and not because we're trying to save money, but because it's not indicated. There's no good reason to do it. But they, you know, even though he was a well and healthy guy, they put him on a treadmill and send him for a stress test because they like to do lots of things to you to make you feel like you're having lots of things done. And lo and behold, there's a small abnormality on the stress test. And he, you know, one thing leads to another and he gets seen by a cardiologist. The next thing you know, he goes for an angiogram, which is a very invasive procedure. And on the table for the angiogram, they squirt the dye in and confirm, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with this guy's coronary arteries. He's completely fine, but he has a stroke on the table, which is a known, a known complication, potential, rare, but nevertheless can happen. The point is, if you think that there is, you know, legitimately potentially something wrong with this person because they're showing up with chest pain, then that's a risk worth taking perhaps. But in a completely well person who has no reason to be undergoing these investigations. So he was a competitive squash player, this guy. Well, not anymore. So at the individual level, unnecessary tests and treatments, whether it's the radiation from the scans, whether it's the slightly abnormal test that leads you into what we call the spiral of investigations, those things can cause harm to you, to, to the individual person. And of course, yes, they also cause harm to others by using resources that could be better utilized. But this thing about unnecessary tests and invest, or, you know, all of the elders, all the seniors out there who are taking 14 pills, you know, and we gave you this pill because, you, you know, we thought it might help you with your acid reflux, but then it caused you to get constipated. So we gave you a pill for the constipation, then the constipation made you dizzy. So we gave you a pill for dizzy. And the next thing you know, this poor older person is on 20 things. And then they fall and break a hip because, you know, this happens all the time. And so recognizing that more is not always better when it comes to drugs, treatments, investigations that we should do, those things we think will make you healthier and stand back and breathe and wait when actually that is the thing that is indicated. These are very hard conversations to have in a consumer culture but the consequences of not having them are very significant. The women of ill repute. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like at the beginning of COVID? Like I saw a TV series recently and it was sort of, everybody was wearing masks and everybody thought everybody was going to drop dead. And if you touch somebody, you were going to drop. That's where we were for a period of time. And people still are getting really, really sick. And some people are getting so sick, they die, they can't get treatment, or they just, you know, their body can't handle it. You ran the COVID treatment. You made all the decisions at Women's College. I remember calling you up at the very beginning of all of this when I was still at CBC. And, and a lot of people were enraged that nurses were out there and they weren't within the proper gear. And you were like, there's so many things, like I'll help you, but there's so many. We were all swamped. I mean, it was just, uh, it's not over, but it must have been must have been hellish trying to make decisions at the beginning. Not knowing too. Yeah, the not knowing, of course, was so hard for everyone. And I want to say, I mean, I feel I always felt safe. I was in an incredibly privileged position in a million ways. But yeah, it was hard. It was hard for everyone. So I was the medical lead for the COVID response at my organization for those first, you know, that first year and a half or so. And I will say a few things about it. 
The first is that we were, we knew we were making decisions with imperfect information and we all made lots of mistakes. And I'm okay with that. We all, everybody, and I'm okay also with the mistakes that were made by our political decision makers and our public health. Look, everybody did the best they could in a crazy set of circumstances with the information that they had. And I think we all, we did okay. And, you know, now we know things about airborne and whatnot that we didn't know at the beginning, but we did the best that we could. And I think that the Canadian response was pretty thoughtful. We shut down a lot of the elective work in the health system in order to make room for the sort of Armageddon that we thought might be coming several times. And probably in retrospect, maybe a little too early and maybe a little too long. Like we were very Canadian, like small C conservative in our decision making, you know, at every step. And so we now feel the ripple effects of that. Like Canadian hospitals were closed to non-emergency things for much longer than most other countries. And the decisions we made at the time, we thought we were doing the right thing. And we were really worried at different points when, you know, some of the public health restrictions were lifted and people really started getting sick. Like I remember as the third wave peak was approaching us and I, I remember feeling physically nauseous. Like, I don't know how we're going to, what happens if people are dying in the parking lots? Like, how are we going to, you know, it was terrifying. But now with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, it may be that we were too conservative. And of course, now all of those canceled things need to be rescheduled. We have a human resources crisis. People are presenting sicker because they, you know, things were deferred and delayed all through the system. In the family medicine office, there's a huge amount of work going on right now that I call the work of reconnection, which is just like everybody coming in with their 18, their list of 18 things, you know, all the stuff they've been saving up. Plus, this was canceled. Plus, they need a new referral to the specialist because it's been two years. Plus, you know, did I ever get the results of no, I didn't get it. So it's a lot of running around and administrative churn trying to just reconnect people with the things that were happening as a matter of course before. So Maureen, there's no room for Maureen's arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got something on your elbow. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to my life. One thing I don't miss about no more cocktail parties, right? Oh, I've got this thing on my elbow. Would you mind? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet. I have friends who are doctors and I just can't believe people still feel that they can avail themselves of free medical advice. This isn't strictly your bailiwick, but it's a crisis. And I'm talking about mental health, especially, you know, right now we're supposed to, we're encouraged to think more about it. And I just, is that treated, they say mental health is health. And and I completely agree with that, but it has a different set of requirements. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine anything that's more my bailiwick than mental health as a family doc. And I think that part of what, you know, this comes back to what you were saying earlier, Wendy, about how hard it is for people to find a, a family physician right now or a primary care team. Like, you know, there's almost no one who comes through the family medicine office who doesn't have a mental health concern in addition to or alongside whatever their physical health concerns might be. And almost all mental health care happens in primary care. Most people, you know, mild to moderate depression, anxiety, stable schizophrenia, you know, bipolar disorder a wide range of anxiety disorders, like kids with ADHD, like all of this is dealt with in primary care. 
And sometimes when we're out of our depth, we need to consult a psychiatrist. And often we need to refer to a social worker or a psychologist or another mental health worker for therapy. But we're giving out most of the prescriptions and we're doing most of the diagnosing. And so when people can't access primary care, the whole thing falls apart. Because then what are you going to, you know, I mean, you're not going to get your mental health care from a walk-in clinic. You're not going to, you know, do the ongoing monitoring of a person's, you know, antipsychotic medication. And so to me, and this is why I am doing the work that I'm doing now in family medicine training is because I just don't see how we're going to fix anything until we get every single Canadian connected to a family physician or a primary care team who they trust, where they feel known, that will, you know, walk you on your journey, whatever that is. And it's going to, you know, sometimes it will be a breast cancer journey and sometimes it will be a depression journey and sometimes it will be a you know, a knee arthritis journey. And sometimes it's uh, just a checkup and whatever, like that's what family medicine primary care is about. It's supposed to be your whole, whole life. You have a, you're a, a doctor. You're also a mom, right? So your daughter is what, 13 now? Yeah, I have a 13 year old. Ooh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I read that and I was like, oh my God. Yes, she's a specialist in eye rolling. Boy, does she do eye rolling. It's, it's extraordinary, really. What a gift. <laughs> the disdain. <laughs> but now, I mean, Maureen and I both have 24-year-olds. She has an older one, too. But I'm hearing stories about, because at first I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was so hard and you were so afraid. You were also telling me to screw off and rolling your eyeballs at every opportunity. But I didn't realize how scary grade nine and, and everything else was. And, and now I'm also hearing stories. Well, we said that we did such and such, but we, and I'm like, no, no. So it's probably good that you don't know everything. <laughs> it is probably good. She rolls her eyes. Yeah. It's best not to know everything. Yeah. And we you know when we were, the kids were all at home, probably the parents were knowing too much. I mean, I don't, you know, I will say that my own kid was one of those kids who really needed to be in in-person school for her own mental health. And that online stuff was just killer. And it, you know, it was what it was and it had to be what it had to be. But she basically went through puberty by herself. All of that normal social stuff that kids are doing at 11 and 12 and 13. So yes, I mean, Again, we did what we did. We made the best decisions that we could at the time. We had the information that we had. And now we live with understanding that those decisions were not decisions, they were trade-offs. And I think we only are now really coming to understand the difference between those two things. And so we talk about, I mean, I don't like the words paying the price. It's not about a price. It's just a recognition that every decision has consequences, flip sides to the coin. And some of the youth mental health issues that we're seeing now are related to that period of social isolation and fear. And, you know, kids live through war, kids live through all kinds, you know, people are resilient and our kids live through something difficult. And many of them lived through, I mean, my, the version my kid lived through was a pretty nice version compared to what a lot of kids lived through, I know. And yet still, it was hard for her. What are you doing now? Well, actually, speaking of what Dr. Martin's doing right now, that's exactly what people are probably listening to this going, I need a family doctor. She's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're falling in love with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want me as your family doctor. I'm always running around doing podcasts. But how do you, like some practical advice for people who don't have or want to switch family doctors or whatever, 
if you could leave us with that short of, you know, making an appointment with you, I'm sure it would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I'm doing now is training the family doctors of the future. So, you know, our university, University of Toronto runs that it's the largest department of family medicine in the world, actually. And so we're training the family doctors that I hope will be able to take care of me into my old age and my kid. But, you know, the short answer is it's really hard right now. And so if you don't have a family doctor, I would say don't give up. There are the official channels like college website and things like Healthcare Connect, et cetera. But often family members, if they speak to their own family physician, can get immediate family members in. July 1st is when new graduates come out of our program. So it's often a good time to look in the summer. Maureen's eyes just perked up. (laughs) I know. I was just like, wow, get a scoop on a new doctor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just establishing their practice. Yeah, July 1 is always a good time to to look for a new new grad in practice. But the other thing, honestly, and I'm dead serious, call your MPP and call your member of parliament and ask them what they're doing to alleviate the crisis in primary care and family medicine, because we have had decades of building hospitals and institutions, temples to illness in our healthcare system that cost a fortune and underinvestment in community. And I don't just mean family medicine, I mean all the community services that people need in the day to day, but that also includes family medicine. And until we declare that every single person needs a family practice team in this country and governments invest and make that a priority, it's not going to happen. And so I do think it is a political issue as much as it is a kind of system navigation issue. It's not like there's a whole lot of family docs sitting out there with nothing to do. Like everybody's busy. And so we don't have enough. They're not organized right. They're not in teams, et cetera, et cetera. These are the kinds of policy decisions that only governments can address. Yeah, we're really at a threshold because, I don't know, growing up, it was always, well, doctors make so much money, let's not worry about doctors. And then during COVID, you're really like, I really need a doctor. Just like you need somebody to come and pick up your garbage, you actually need somebody to look after you. You need life. You need to respect what people do and that they're going to get burnt out. And and some of them are going to say, I don't want to do this anymore. So it's it's great that you're actually training a new crop to care and, and be good. So this has been wonderful. This It's really good, good practical advice. And it's just been a pleasure meeting you. So thank you for finding the time to do this. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much. Wow. She's lovely in every way. And I'm so glad that we have people like Dr. Danielle Martin out there who, I mean, the fact that she's a practicing doctor with all that that entails and the fact that she's also an activist to change the system is amazing. I mean, I could barely do this and brush my teeth in the same day. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was really struck by her quote. It was I read a couple of articles and, and, and she talked about, I want to make the world a better place. And I'm like, yes, but it's so corny. You can't really say that anymore. And yet, well, I mean, you can say it and people will laugh at you, but she's doing it. She's actually doing it and training people. I we, we didn't get into what's going to happen. You know, our doctors, like her grandfather, if he'd been a doctor and came from Egypt and had five degrees there and was an orthopedic surgeon there and, and now is, you know, unemployed here. So there are solutions, but they're complicated. You let a pharmacist write a, a prescription for everything. It's it's like, I don't know, she must feel like on the prescription thing that she's that she's beating her head against a wall. It's been 20 years, but maybe that's just how long it takes. Maybe that's how, I mean, how long did it take to get Medicare? I mean, starting from the dawn of time, thousands of years. 
<laughs> Maybe millions. I wonder about your arm. How's yeah, your, your well, my arm's, arm's fine. Okay I'm going to look after it myself. <laughs> you did the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Wish me luck. Uh, well, we'll just show up and ask her for it. Oh, I'm going to send her an email about my, my pimple. Let's see if she can help. <laughs> <laughs> The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.